This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Hi, hi, hello to all the six people, probably now five or four people that are that probably listen to this shit. Um, so I'll, I'll make this one quick. I know I got three episodes coming out today, so spoiler alert if you haven't listened to the one that's going to come out after this, there's another one that comes out after this because I've been in the, uh, first of all, hello everyone, can you dig it? Hello, I am here, I am alive, as you thought and you uh, saw in the last um, episode, hopefully that I am indeed alive, and so we are going to be, um, you know, just kind of continuing on that part, and so this is the post that I was really kind of excited about and ended up honestly being kind of disappointed in just because of how it affected my writing with Corona, and like I said, it knocked me out pretty good, so I was like, you know, okay, I'll just kind of pick up where I left off here, and it ended up being kind of garbage, at the end, at least I think it is, it's definitely not the best thing I've written in a while, but I think it's definitely something where um, I know it wasn't my best thing, I would say, but I mean, I still feel like, like it's important to post these things just because I do spend a lot of time on them, and if they really are as bad as I say it is, I follow like the Colin Cowherd thing where he says like it's the say it out loud test, right, where you kind of go in and you're just like, you know, wow, if it's something that's really... <coughs> is really as bad as they say it is, then why don't you just say it out loud and actually see, and, you know, so we'll see here, but, so I was reading, um, before Corona, now after Corona, it's a massive book, but I was reading the, uh, Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson, who's probably, if not one of the best biographers ever, he's one of the best biographers ever, at least one of the most notable ones, you guys have all seen it before, especially when, you know, we were in, you know, bookstores were really popular, it was the giant one with the white cover, and he's, like, staring into your fucking soul throughout the whole time you're looking at the book. So um, it was that one, and I was basically like, you know, I don't really remember what the compulsion was to buy it. I think it was just kind of like, I want to learn about this person because I've heard a lot of things about this person, and it seems like everyone has a person on, or an opinion on this person. And I wanted to go and make my own opinion, and I'm still, I'm, I'm about a little more than halfway through it. So, I mean, I've been working, and obviously Corona's taken a lot of time to get that you know, lengthened out for me. So thank you for that. Um, you know, whoever came up with the coronavirus, but anyways, so wanted to, and, and you know, Apple's the biggest company in the world and kind of wanted to, you know, explore that. So here we go. So on that note, Steve Jobs is officially the most bizarre motherfucker I've ever studied. Now coming from a bold person, from a person who adores studying bizarre motherfuckers, this is a bold claim to make. I'd heard several stories about Steve Jobs, mostly coming from legend and lore. 
that he was either beloved or a tyrant, a dysfunctional artist or a functional disruptor, loved or hated. So I finally decided to get to the bottom of it and order the book. You know, the one that I just mentioned earlier, we all saw at Barnes & Noble for years at a time, with the white cover of a bald dude staring into the camera lens's soul for such depth that it made Medusa jealous. So there were several fucking reasons I would avoid, or um, I was avoiding doing this. One, that it's absolutely fucking ginormous. It's over 600 pages. That would be the longest non-Harry Potter book I've ever read, a very tall order with my schedule. Additionally, I'm behind on my reading anyways, which is hard to believe due to the fact that I'm only reading half as many books as last year, which, you know, again, is very important to the scheduling thing, and we already talked about that in the solitary confinement post, but having a schedule is a very important thing, and I'm just beginning to realize that now, and it's kind of, you know, biting me in the ass. But anyways, you guys don't probably care about that, so we'll move on. But I did promise myself more quality of books, so I pulled the trigger and I ordered it. So I came to the initial collusion within about the first 50 pages. Jobs, an adopted child to a California mechanic and a housewife, was a brilliant but highly disagreeable student. Getting caught up in the counterculture movement of the early 1970s, he proceeded to make a pilgrimage to India, where he nearly stayed for months and died of dysent where he stayed where he stayed for months and nearly died of dysentery. When he returned home, he went and stayed on a commune of a college friend, where he took care of apple orchards. Jobs, feeling that he was pure of earth and soul, didn't feel the need to bathe. He sometimes didn't for months at a time. Following an incredibly strict vegan diet even by vegan standards, there were times where he would eat nothing but raw carrots for months. Occasionally he would switch it up with apples, that was where the namesake of the company came from, if you're catching on. In the meantime, he audited physics classes at Stanford, worked nights at Atari, people couldn't stand him so they gave him the night shift, and read up constantly on enlightenment and societal liberation, mostly coming in the forms of artistic expression and technological advancement. And after attending a local Californian club of wannabe computer nerds, Jobs and his friend Steve Wozniak, albeit a good, year old, a good deal older than Jobs, I think he was about five or six years older than him, wanted to create their own. Wozniak, being both incredibly generous and naive, wanted to give it away for free. Jobs wanted a multiple times profit margin. Jobs, per usual, won that debate. The Apple I was then born, with Wozniak, a computer whiz, doing all the manufacturing and programming, and Jobs handling the design, marketing, and investor and public relations. Securing investment funds from former Sun Microsystems executive Mike Markula, the innovations continued with the breakthrough Apple II in 1977. Continuing on their breakneck pace, Apple filed with Wall Street titan Morgan Stanley to become a public company, and did so on December 12, 1982. One of the most desired stocks in the history of the market, Apple's market value skyrocketed, making Jobs and Steve Jobs worth approximately $250 million and one of the youngest self-made, non-inherited-based wealth, wealthiest people in America. At that time, Apple Computer was valued at approximately $1.778 billion. As of April 12, 2021, nearly four decades later, Apple is worth $2.213 trillion. That's a 1,244.7 times increase, in case you're wanting to quickly do the math in your head. After a tumultuous time after IPO, including which where Steve Jobs left the company for a period, Apple Inc. is now the most valuable company in the history of the world. If we were compared by total GDP output, it would be the 8th largest economy in the world, placing just above Brazil and just below France. Steve Jobs changed the world when he founded Apple Computer. It's hard to overstate how much he did so. He took a jackhammer to the face of the music industry. He developed a whole new breed of distributing and publishing of film content. He made computers look cool. He made nerds care about aesthetics. The outsized effect that one man in a vision had an entire planetary population is staggering, to put it in mild fashion. But this also comes with a cost. Currently, Apple is on one side of the biggest Cold War since the Cold War that no one is talking about, 
We'll leave out the one that's brewing between us, China, and Russia to give this piece some levity. Apple's opponent is fellow Silicon Valley titan Facebook. Still reeling in the scandals from both the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections, as well as the de rapidly declining mistrust in their institutional power, Big Tech's credibility has all but deteriorated on both sides of the political aisle. They seem to get dragged in front of every very upset Ted Cruz and Ilhan Omar every two weeks now. Apple is now vilified by everybody, from creating a monopoly of mobile phones, even though I would dispute that that is not true, to spying on you through your camera, to tracking your every movement and step following co with COVID-19 tracing, contact tracing technology. Most in big tech are following. It turns out, when you don't need a real alias to create a very real personality in a digital platform, and can say nearly everything you want without consequence, bad things can happen. That is, if our overlords think that what you say is in terms of your strict and un unadulterated obedience. However, to be fair, not a lot of the consumers and these technological titans are doing a lot about it either. We constantly complain about all their issues and problems, yet we do almost nothing but succumb to pointless slacktivism when it pertains to actually having to correct their behavior. Part of this is due to their addictive qualities, particularly amongst the networking companies, and their monopoly power strangling the market. But I think it's a fair claim to say that some of us underlings could speak up with a little more fervor as well. Everyone is claiming victimhood, yet no one is doing anything about it. But first, back to the new Cold War. Apple is trying much more than any other techno tech company to shift away from this trend of mistrust in technology, according to Tristan Harris, the president for the Center of Humane Technology and the star of the Netflix documentary The Social Dilemma. Due to the issues that Facebook has faced, Apple has issued them an ultimatum, i.e. threat. Fix your shit, or we deplatform you. How could this be possible, you may ask? It's a good question, and one that everyone that uses an Apple or Facebook technology should be aware of. For any application, a technology that runs off another technology, to function, something must obviously be underneath it in order to support that, ap that application. That something is called an operating system. This operating system is mission control for an entire technological system. It runs everything. For Apple, it is called iOS, or the Apple Operating System. Clever, I know. In order to be ca compatible with Apple technology, a technology, most likely another application, needs to be compatible with Apple's operating system. Otherwise, it cannot run on an Apple system. For example, when the social media application Parler was removed from the Apple Store, all Apple had to do was simply delist it from their operating system. Tim Cook probably could do it in about five seconds if he wanted to. What Tim Cooks also wants to, wants to do is preserve his and his company's brand. He doesn't want to go down with the Silicon Valley ship. So, in, in an incredibly hard stance for someone in the Valley, he threatened Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg to nut up or shut up. Do as I say, fix your issues, or we take you off our operating system. None of this has been said publicly, of course. This hasn't been proven to be true. But based on all the context that is out there, that is certainly the route that it's headed. It's a smart strategy by Apple particularly since all the other tech giants out there are doing an unbelievably shitty job of improving their own business models and products. To give my two cents, Facebook is fucked. Irrevocably fucked. Facebook doesn't have an operating system, and Apple owns a fifth of the world's smartphone market. And considering the third biggest player, Xiaomi, is located in China, who hates Facebook, they could get their market share potentially slashed by a third. This would be devastating for Facebook. It would cripple their business. It's either bow to Tim Cook or bow to oblivion. Tucker Carlson once said something to me that has always stuck with me. Beware of sources of, of all sources of concentrated power, no matter where they come from. This is a bipartisan take coming from a partisan person, a luxury sorely missed from this world of ours. This is a powerful reminder for us all. It shows us how we should look at and perceive our personal world and the world around us. 
Because looking through all things through a lens of power is a very, very bad way of going about interacting in the world. This is how totalitarian systems are born. They see an oppressor, or more likely make one up, and decide to topple them to uplift the quote-unquote downtrodden. And then they usually end up killing millions and millions of people, usually because a much larger portion than initially targeted. Because, as it turns out, looking through things completely in a lens that is virtually surefire way to make sure you end up hating Looking through things completely in that lens is a virtually surefire way to make sure that you end up hating more people than you like. No matter if it's Apple enforcing its monopoly power on what we consume, Facebook with our privacy, religious institutions with their dogma, banking and high finance with their massive funding and government backing, gated institutions and their narratives both in the private and public sector, and even organizations of charity, this event can take place. Big things, when left to run amok with their vices, eventually can decay into things that are not all like they seem. However, this theory is not just limited to the world that seems so far away from us in our control. Far from it, as a matter of fact. This big-is-bad factor can bleed into our personal life as well, and does so on many occasions. Think about it. How many people in your life do you have in your life that you don't give a single fuck about? How many things do you own that haven't you haven't given a single look or thought to once you've purchased it? How many times have you looked at your priorities as to what you devote your personal energy to and have been underwhelmed with your decision? All of us, myself certainly being included, are guilty of this. In our time now, clout chasing has infected our lives to thinking that bigger is better with everything. It's always more, more, more. Like the 1980s yuppie era, we've taken a drug, hint, social media, not coke, although that certainly can play a role as well, and use it to power our lifestyles, complete with all that it can get us in our era in terms of quote-unquote success amongst the masses. And not only that, we've welcomed this change with open arms. We've created an avenue for this to be the rule, and not the exception, in a society with people whose mental capacities have no room for this at all. Because, in reality, no one has the mental capacity for this. This is what makes excess so dangerous. The aforementioned Tristan Harris has a great analogy for this that fits nicely with our Apple story. Hardware and software. Even though the human brain is the most complex organism our scientific community has ever studied, it still has remained relatively and remarkably unchanged, as has the rest of us, in terms of raw number of neurons and neural connections for the majority of our existence. However, our technology that we feed into it has grown exponentially. In tech terms, what we're doing to our brains would be like trying to run the modern-day space program on the original Macintosh. It just doesn't make sense. The hardware can't keep up with the software. Problems we will invariably come to bear. To see how, we're going to be looking at why big is mostly bad, how it infects our lives in different ways, and what steps we can take to alleviate the problems before it starts. This is something we can all get better at, and I hope to take that step better with you as we travel down this journey. So load up on some bags of apples and carrots and get ready. This is going to be a ride. As I've stated many times, my sister is autistic. This is not the single factor that, factor that defines her, but it would be a lie to say that it does not do so at all. It is a big reason why I conduct my life in the way I do, and why I expect within reason that others do relatively the same. Throughout my life, I've tried to live in a charitable fashion always striving to serve others in spades before I serve myself in slight. I haven't always succeeded in this, obviously, but I think that I've done a pretty good job with it doing it in most cases. There's a charity that my family donates to and to serve. My mom is a prominent member, has been a prominent member in our home city for my entire life. I won't name it, but it's the most well-known autism advocacy organization in the United States, at least from what I can tell. It has a ton of endorsements ranging from professional sports organizations to sorority complexes. When you look in the right place, right now wouldn't be a bad time as April is Autism Awareness Month, you can find examples of it in almost everywhere. 
With the rapid rise of autism awareness, particularly over the past 20 years, this charity's presence in the eyes of the average American has skyrocketed. It has rapidly climbed in both notoriety and value, to the point where it is now discussed rapidly in things such as government legislation and human resources boardrooms. The word neurodiversity is starting to become a thing with the rise of special needs children needing placement within our workforce. A lot of good things are being accomplished in this regard. Due to our late start and complete lack of contribution to the conversation from the media in this matter, I'm actually pleased with what progress has been made. But not all is perfect. As institutions like the one I mentioned have gotten bigger, other things have happened too. When on a date early in my Boston adventures, I told the girl I was out with about my sister and all the stuff I do for charity surrounding that particular cause. While she was happy, at least I think, with my involvement, she wasn't happy with one thing, the charity itself, the one I had mentioned earlier. She told me something that I always tell everyone wanting to fundraise. Look very carefully into what you donate to, as it may not be what it seems. I shrugged it off, didn't think much of it, and went about my business. However, my curiosity got the best of me, and I went on the company's websites to get in, website to get in the nitty-gritty. The good thing with a lot of these charities is, especially if they're big, they have to post things like this in order to keep compliant with the government. I eventually got to the part of the website where they talked about the donation money, which was divided up per dollar as to what percentage went to what. And what I saw shocked me. The amount per dollar that went to helping people with autism was a whopping four cents. I was completely floored. It couldn't be, right? The biggest charity in the world for autism could possibly be getting away with this, could they? Well, it turns out they could and they do. And it gets worse. Looking back on the division of funding, there was a giant outlier. Above 50 cents on the dollar. That piece went to something called, quote, advocacy and awareness campaigns, i.e. marketing. I closed the tab in disbelief. A charity that I thought so highly of, that I had focused so much of my energy on creating awareness for, was nothing more than a glorified Ponzi scheme. It would have made Bernie Madoff proud. But then I thought of something. Did this charity eventually start out as this? The answer, I still believe, is an emphatic no. I know the origin story of this charity, and it's about as noble as one would expect. So how did things go so wrong? I think our good friend XS can lend an answer to this question. If you remember our original discussion all the way back, excess culture is when people begin to pursue growth for growth's sake alone. This is not just a me thing, by the way. Others have noticed this as well, most notably an intellectual dark web founder, Eric Weinstein, who has made an incredibly bold, but true, claim about growth. Not seeing any innovation and real growth within hardly any industry, businesses decided to pursue it inorganically in what he called an embedded growth obligation, or ego. Growth, when it's warranted, is a good thing. We all pursue growth in most areas of our life. It is our personal and societal way of natural progression. We should want to encourage it when these opportunities arise. However, there are a lot of good ways to contribute to growth inorganically that are not good. It is good to want to lose weight, but it's not, it's not good to starve yourself. It's okay to want to get a girlfriend, but it isn't okay to stalk women's Instagram DMs and send them pics of your undersized dick when they're clearly unwarranted. Excess culture, when left unchecked, is a recipe for disaster and misery. We think we're getting ahead when in reality we're only digging ourselves into a hole in the ground which we can't see. We simply don't have the foresight because we are blinded by our own ambition and greed. Additionally, when left to people who can truly affect change, they can spin this into a manifestation of the aforementioned power plays that have wreaked havoc on every society that has tried them since Frederick Nietzsche came up with the idea in the first place. Excess, or big things, can create bubble for our, bubbles for our lives that are like the housing market or Bitcoin, if you believe in that sort of thing. They may look nice on the surface, but underneath that surface is just a bunch of fluff and nonsense that probably doesn't amount to much when you put two and two together. Not only can this cause a myriad of problems, but it also can lead to great feelings of disappointment within yourself and your mind when you start to look at the other elements of your life. 
If your expectations of one thing versus the other are tethered to a false reality, you'll, mostly like, you'll most likely end up unhappy when the man behind the curtain reveals his ugly face. Additionally, a second layer of this can accumulate on top of excess. Variety, the spice of death. Variety, as we've examined previously, overwhelms us with choice so that we drown in everything that comes of it. Variety is the most overrated component of much of our generation. So much of us are obsessed with choices the more than the qualities of the choices themselves, which can, understandably, lead to a multitude of problems in a lot of different areas. While things can be linked to its genesis, with the internet and social media certainly becoming two of the biggest factors, a bigger problem, at least in my opinion, has been uncovered. The complete lack of boundaries of this has seized upon our lives as a whole. Not only has the internet world uncovered this excess and shaken the spice of death all the fuck over our proverbial salads, it has completely doused it in both so that we feel like we can no longer escape its grasp. The binary examples of our social lives can prove this point to great effect. For most of us, we follow a lot of people on social media sites. We generally know a good amount of them, but we certainly don't know all of them as well as the all of them well that certainly we use the case very gets inserted in front of the word well. A lot of us don't see the snowball accumulating more snow until it's too late until it begins to be so absurd and obscene that we literally can't force ourselves to look away anymore. That's that whole social media addiction thing begins to rear its ugly head. This trend is not unique to the digital world, unfortunately. All the time in my various social interactions, I am either a part, part of or witness other interactions that I know are merely farces. We keep up appearances, do things that we don't like to do, and hang out with people that we don't want to hang out with. And for what reason? I would say that this false and odd allure of big again. The snowball, while providing no utility to us at all, is enticing simply because it's big. When un untethered from rational thought and sensible question asking, this can quickly spiral out of control until we all lose all grip on what is real, what is actually reality. Throughout this rat race that we run with ourselves, most of, our, most of the time at least, there are a few things that can help you stop the bleeding and come to a rational conclusion about their situation. The big question you need to ask yourself in this type of situation is only one word. Why? Why do you need all this in your, li in our, in your lives? Why do you need to follow all those people on networking apps? Why do you need all of this stuff? Why do you need to have so much in your life? Why do you need to have to clog up all your life with nonsensical nonsense? The answer is simple. We don't. We have no need or utility for this type of behavior at all. Human beings have survived a remarkably long time without either. It should be the same now, particularly when almost everything is easier than it's been. So let's ask the question again. Why? I think the reason is internally motivated. We choose it because we are creatures driven by pace. Pace of what? The pace of a lot of things. We choose the pace of our lives, which is driven by factors that constitute the environment of our lives, ranging from who we spend our time with to why we spend our time doing the things we may or may not like to do. But we must remember something. Greed is, contrary to Michael Douglas, not good. Greed corrupts and makes everything decay. In the last year or so we've been in the COVID matrix, everything is blended together, making the holistic infection even worse It is continuing at that pace. Infections can spread in numerous ways, but I'm not an epidemiologist or someone in a wet market in China, but quote-unquote slowing the spread is much different than a lot of people believe it to be. Mostly, it is because of the reason named above. We just don't know how they come about. We know that germs exist, and if not properly treated, those germs can hurt us. But how? 
I'll spare you my fake science degree and won't bore you with details about how, or may, how they may or may not have come to have been. I'll simply go with what I know as a guy trying to understand this big problem. A lot of diseases, whether they be escaped from the lab, transmitted through an animal, or otherwise come from a bizarre sexual encounter with a stranger at a Molly Hatch concert, have to go from point A to point B in order to spread. However, in order to get from one point to another, you must have a path to follow. That path to follow is called a conduit. It is simply what leads from one place to another, like the yellow brick road, an electricity cable, or the desired humping variety of your choosing when you had that bizarre sexual encounter at a Molly Hatchet concert. Shout out Kelso. But this problem of big is unique in another sense. It is not, believe it or not, an actual infectious pathogen, nor is it an electric current or a humping pattern. I'll leave the jokes for all you to make on my behalf. But alas, no. It is not something where you can easily confront it and just leave it as is. It is something that needs to be explored differently. Let's recap. So far, we've discussed how our problems of big things spread primarily through our own personal networking effects where we leverage both our personal and social networks in order to navigate the world. Additionally, we have learned how they can... Oh, geez. Learn to control and leverage us in order to make them a part of our story and not the other way around. This is a very large problem, one that should not be taken lightly. That networking effect does not have to exist by itself. It has to have a conduit, something to allow it to go from point A to point B. It is that genesis we need to chase in order to see where it comes from. Let's think about it. The key to most things, especially in this day amongst young people, is going to be technology. That technology doesn't need to be artificial intelligence or machine learning, but it needs to be something. Life would be very difficult without microwave ovens and running water. But it's not as basic as that, either. There must be a healthy middle ground. Something that is not rudimentary to our survival, but not something that is too far out of our reach that we have no hope of exploring it properly. Something that I am guilty of more than most. Unfortunately for us, the conduits that lead to our problems with big don't just turn off like a microwave oven and rubbing, running water. Although running water is a bit harder to shut off, I will admit. The conduit that leads to our big problem is our technology that we keep in our devices. It never shuts off, even when it shuts off. Calling back to our friend Michael Douglas once again, it truly never sleeps. We can never stop building because we can never seem to shut off. This is a major problem, because it allows the snowball to keep rolling downhill. Think about it. You have a phone which is connected to dozens if not hundreds of applications that are constantly throwing you into the rat race even when you don't want to. They're designed to be addictive products. Just ask our friends Chamath Palapatia and Sean Parker. They'll tell you. The fact that we're hooked with our devices for social debt validation is incredibly dangerous. Think of it as an attaching a lightning rod to a car battery. A lightning rod, at least in theory, is only supposed to be used to capture extreme amounts of electricity when they come bolting down from the sky. A car battery is supposed to run all the time when connected to a proper source, i.e. a conduit of some kind. When a lightning rod is hooked up to a car battery, it suddenly becomes a part of the conduit, not anything special to attract any kind of special attention. It is simply at the mercy of the car battery, another part of the machine that doesn't have an end to it. Sorry to spoil the fun, but we're the lightning rod, and the technologies are our car battery. They never seem to run out of energy that powers the thing that should be unique. People are a special group of individual things floating around in the cosmos. We should not be constantly stimulated. We were never meant to be. Something that our culture has gotten drastically wrong is the exact opposite of this. We should not, to the contrary, be filling our lives with empty calories of non-existent social validation. This is not only a detrimental thing to do, it also fills us up with self-lies. Lying to yourself, which should be the cardinal sin of everything going on in our culture, in my book, only gets exacerbated when the pressures of a social situation comes down to you like the wrath of a thousand suns. That will only serve to make your problem worse, not better. And that's only when it's just you. Naturally, the buck just doesn't stop with you. Quite the contrary. 
When you get a sugar high of empty social media calories, they tend to spread very rapidly to those which most surround you. And what most surrounds you? Remember our talk of conduits. They all lead places, and most likely to a multiple of those places at once. So, what happens in your conduits that surround every aspect of your life never shut off? The answer is that our problem of big in our own minds explodes to the minds of everyone around our own personal networking effects. There have been studies saying that only six, there are only six degrees of separation between us meeting every single person on the face of the earth. I'm willing to bet that, since social media technologies have come out, that those have become even smaller as we've innovated and expanded. Because our social validation isn't an individual thing. That would be contradictory. It wouldn't fit the purpose of, quote, social validation. This shit doesn't stand still. It expands ever so slowly into our networking effects, and then explodes out as soon as you can perceive that it's actually happening. This networking effect leads to something that we talked about earlier, our lightning rod wired to a car battery example. But, but another question. What happens when the lightning rod gets hooked up to more car batteries? So many more that it can't, soon can't take the electricity and becomes numb to the non-existent feelings of shock that only an inanimate object with um, that amount of non-shock can feel. We won't know. We aren't inanimate objects. But we do know how it feels to be constantly overloaded. Like that lightning rod, our problem of big has seeped into our networking effects and injected them with anabolic steroids. We can no longer get away from the effect that our personal bigs have on us. With no effective off switch and nothing to do to relieve us from the traction of a lightning rod, our networking effects have an addictive high. They hook us up to our monitor of social validation that has been built by things such as evolution and never let it up for, to grasp for air. We can never get a break because it never stops. It brain hacks us, makes us feel like shit that we are constantly turned in, tuned into the scene, and continues to bludgeon us over the head until we're microwaved into oblivion. This leads us to chase one more thing we should never chase, and one I mentioned earlier. Clout. Clout, aka more social status and validation that one could possibly stomach without even a somewhat legitimate range of us giving it to us, is someone that blinds and corrupts even the best of us. We do this in order to see, to see if we can impress people. But why? To avoid our feelings of smallness, of course. If you remember, smallness is an adjective I like to use to describe our general attitude of being within the world. A lot of us don't like to deal with the fact that, throughout the course of our lives, we will be largely insignificant in the grand scheme of the world. This is no fault of our own, it's simply the way that things work. This, however, does not agree with us well, or agree well with us, because we like to feel significant. We like to feel as we're a part of something bigger. We like to feel as if we're special. But the reality is we're not. At least not usually. Yeah, your mom lied to you. Get over it. So we chase anything to avoid our feelings of personal smallness. And where does that get us? Well, we end up in a big place with all the social validation that we can handle and more. But does that do us any good? The answer to that is a resounding no. We might end up in a bigger place, we might feel better, but we're still small. And inherently, I think we all know it, too. We know we can't escape, but we give it a futile effort anyways in order to at least lie to ourselves to give the effort to do so. But we can never escape. I think we all know that, too. With no escape, the only thing we can do is try to live with it the best we can. But, of course, that is easier said than done. Even though it's easier said than done, it can still be done. The question is, do we have the individual strength to get ourselves to do it? This is a very hard thing to do. When I did my digital declutter last summer, I suffered through a major withdrawal. When I began to cut off and lose people, it was a painful process, one that came with more hurdles than I initially anticipated. 
I talked a big game, but when it came to walking the talk, I didn't anticipate how hard it would actually be. In terms of creating an organizational strategy around our problem of big, it can be harder than most. Because when we look at our problem of big, we can see that we're addicted to big. We want things to be better and expand and grow. It's a natural desire of the human condition, after all. However, that requires balance. Remember, growth for growth's sake is just not good. If there is no value underlying that growth, then it just becomes excessive excess crying out for a correction. It's happening in our financial system right now. That's why decentralized currency is exploding. And Bitcoiners being assholes, but that's a whole other issue. Steve Jobs may have changed the world when he invented Apple. Almost everyone in the world, including myself, would say that he changed it for the better. But most of the time, in most cases, our problem of big is not going to change the world. The only world that it could change is ours, and most likely not for the better. As you've seen with our culture and where it currently stands in terms of both communication and omniscience, we can't rely on, quote, making it big to feel fulfilled in our lives. The logic is flawed for the same reason that our studies of excess are flawed. Mining value always comes first, and then growing that value into other things must always come after. Doing it in reverse will only result in misery for you and everything you have wrapped into your life, and this is not good. However, there are steps you can take to alleviate it. Like most things, they are not a matter of just flipping an on-off switch. They are a matter of really digging deep into what you feel is important and how you rank and value those things. You're going to fuck up and you're not going to get it right all the time. It's a frustrating uphill climb most of the time, but it's worth that endeavor simply out of the fact that you might end up getting it right after all. The first step you can and should take to alleviate this problem is to better manage your information flow. Experiment with ways you can take different things in. Or take different things in. I didn't say that syntactically correct, I'm sorry. This is a wide-ranging topic of interest simply because of our conduits make it so easy for us to get all that information in as quick of a fashion as we've ever seen before in the history of the modern world. The big that results from this is not a big like Apple Computer. It's not even close. The big that we constantly encounter in our lives, in terms of our careers, our friends, and our ever-expanding network, is most likely built off of things that just can be built. Managing your information flow is the key to cutting off the source of big at the source. And I've talked about ad nauseum, and I did like two seconds ago, when I did my first digital declutter last August, and I've done research and practice digital minimalism to the best of my ability ever since that day. I understand that digital minimalism can seem a bit extreme, but I do believe that practicing at least some of it can be the key to getting your mind where it should be. Open to new ideas, but ready to shut off anything that doesn't end up serving you and what you value. So, that's why I'm not telling you to cut off everything if you don't want to. Trust me, I did, and I even broke three days before the month ended. However, I think experimenting is still a good idea, and doing it in the vein of your mental well-being and your standing in your personalized version of your life is about as good of an excuse to, as any to start on this path. So, taking the namesake of this blog, don't just throw all your technology into a wood shepherd and never turn on the television again. Take a page out of your friend Steve Jobs and Bugs Bunny's playbook. Only eat carrots for weeks at a time. Well, not really. That's still not healthy for you, no matter how you slice it. But what would be healthy is maybe going for a few days without watching the news, or going on YouTube, or tweeting something. That way, when you get, when you get it back, you can see whether you did, indeed, actually miss it. If you did, great. See why you missed it, and then go around tweaking something else. Getting analytical about this might be the only chance you have in seeing how managing your conduits can really improve your life. I would not leave something like this up to speculation. The second initiative that must follow is managing your organic and inorganic networks. Networking effects come into play after intakes of information are both personal and impersonal, which is why they must come after managing your information flow. If you do nothing to stifle the massive intakes of information that we all face, you will not stand a remote chance against doing the same with your networks. 
networks that are derivative of information, even, dealing with, even when dealing with people. If you know nothing about a person, odds are you will not try to be in their network in the first place. It will just be too foreign to you. Once you take in information, however, you can learn about more, more about a person or thing, develop opinions or thoughts about that person or thing, and then go about making your decision. After a while, all those thoughts start to converge, develop a massive series of connections within your brain that bounce off and relate to one another. Therefore, your networks are a derivative of your information flow that you take in. But ask yourself some questions first, and one we've asked before. Do you really need what you take in? Why do you need it? Not many people know the answers to these questions, and I find myself asking them more than I'm willing to admit. It means nothing to manage your information flow if you can't stifle what comes beyond the added information flow. If you just stop or stop when you begin to manage your information, only half the job is done. The other half of your job is managing the back end so that you can really reap the benefits of not overwhelming yourself with our problem of big and not solving any problems that really do not need to be solved. Finally, I'll urge you to do one last thing. Remember your smallness. Learn to accept that some of the best things in life come in small packages. Like Mark Manson once beautifully stated, you are so incredibly insignificant in the grand scheme of the earth that what you do will almost certainly have no large meaningful impact or consequence. Like the stockbroker asshole boss once said to Jordan Belfort in Wolf Wall Street, you are lower than pond scum. He said it and he meant it. And he was right. When you learn to derive a lot of value from a lot of small things, your life will, be, will become insurmountably better. It will create its own bigness out of a lot of combined smallness. You're not putting all your eggs in one basket. You're simply creating a bigger big from a lot of smalls. You're largely insignificant and a speck of dust in the shoe of the universe. Why not make more of what you don't have? So, I hope this shit made sense. Like I said, I was in the Corona Multiverse and I wrote it. If not, oh well, there's always next week. Until then, own the day, open your mind. See you guys next week. Thanks for sticking with it. Thanks for listening. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight? <laughs>